And I don't assume anybody who's listening to this uh, actually watched these films. Uh, but if no, if you do, not this one. Uh, don't ever yeah, watch. Don't this ever film. watch this no, one. Don't, don't. The warning's coming at the end of the episode. You should cut this into the beginning of the episode. Don't watch this film. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that that's the intro to the episode, the clip that plays before the credits. <laughs> Boo! This is the theme song at the start of the show. This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since I started singing, they already added more. So stop wasting time on the theme song. Just tell us the name of the show. It's uh, called the Podcast More Tennis Shoes. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the theme song. Hello once again and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,726 movies on Disney+. Plus. In this episode, we are watching The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin. I am Sean Erker and I'm here with my co-hosts Bob and Rob. How are you doing, Bob? I am doing fantastic. Thank you for How asking. How about you, Rob? I was better before I saw this movie, but besides that, I'm doing pretty good. Okay. All right. Good to know. So I'm going to take it that you didn't like the movie, perhaps. Uh, yeah, that's a fair take. I would say that's a, that's a fair take. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we'll have better luck with one of the more recently added films. Since our last episode, they have added Far From Home, The Adventures of Yellow Dog. So that's a new option moving forward. Far From Home, The Adventures of, new, of Yellow Dog. That's why we're at 1,726 no. Okay, so they added Spider-Man? No, no, no. And then Adventures of Yellow Dog. I thought that was like a subtitle. They're just re-releasing Spider-Man into theaters, the more fun version. The more fun stuff version. So this was going to be the uh, Spider-Man, the Adventures of Yellow Dog. <laughs> this is not Spider-Man Far From Home. They have not added Spider-Man Far From Home. They have added the movie, Far From Home, oh! the Adventures of Yellow Dog. Oh my it god, It is awesome. a movie about a yellow dog who's far from home. <laughs> I, either way, it sounds like a big cry fest in the end, so I don't know about that Well, one. what we are watching today is The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin. Now, for those who don't know it, this is the story of a British butler who apparently buttles for a haunted painting. <laughs> I noticed that. loses his job, takes a miner across state lines to California, where he strikes gold while digging a grave for his arch nemesis. His still living nemesis, I might add. He then mm -hmm. loses said gold in the river and forgets to go back for it. Then climactically beats up an intellectually disabled man and is indirectly responsible for burning down San Francisco. End of movie. That is the plot um, of the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We could go home. We're done. I mean, he also commits like theft on a level never seen by any robber before at that time he doesn't legally win that money <laughs> they sing a song about him <laughs> they sing so many songs about him so to start us off this movie came out in 1967 all right it was directed by james nelson uh who had previously directed episodes of batman 1966 batman hmm. which i totally buy because this has a very 1966 batman feel to it particularly in the performance of Brian Russell as Jack Flagg, who is basically playing his fateful ward. Oh, uh, he's playing Jack. Robin. Uh, 
Except there's no jokes. It doesn't work when there's no jokes. It just yeah. seems like a weird, corny performance. It was based on the novel called By the Great Hornspoon. That's the name of the novel. <laughs> By the Great Hornspoon. <laughs> By the Great Hornspoon. <laughs> which was written by a man named uh, Sid Fleischman. That novel had a butler by the name of Praiseworthy. So they took that out and made him Bullwhip Griffin. Well, just Not Griffin. Sh- he gets yeah, the they made him Eric later. Griffin and he gets yeah. the moniker Bullwhip. Okay. Wait, start- wait, okay. If we're talking about mo- what exactly, like, Bullwhip. It's never referenced what it is. I mean, I'm assuming it's a Bullwhip, but like. I think it just where did it come cool. from? Well, it, it I guess comes, it came from the book Bullwhip Brandon. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It comes, it comes from the yeah, book. Sorry, no, yeah, I, yeah. I I did not pay attention to this movie too much. My apologies. <laughs> That's quite <laughs> all right. A... I don't I don't think the director, writer, or cast did for that yeah. matter. I'll be no. asking a lot of questions during this episode. All right, it stars Roddy McDowell, who plays Eric Griffin, also known as Bullwhip Griffin, uh, Suzanne Plachette plays Arabella Flagg. So Suzanne Plachette from Blackbeard's Ghost. Blackbeard's She's Ghost. She's back once again playing yep. Arabella Flagg, the romantic interest. Brian Russell plays her younger brother, Jack Flagg. Uh, Carl Malden plays Judge Higgins, the uh, villain of the piece. Uh, Harry Gardino plays Sam Trimble. Richard Hyden plays Quentin Bartlett. Richard Hyden, uh, probably best known as Professor Audley from Billy Wilder's Ball of Fire. Um, if anyone has seen that, he also is the caterpillar in uh, Alice in Wonderland, the Walt Disney he, animated uh, film. He also was a he was a replacement for the actor Tony Hancock, who was fired from this movie for his onset behavior. So he almost wasn't in the film. Yes, and uh, my suspicion is perhaps intentionally fired after he saw what he was making. <laughs> yeah. Got got himself fired. Perhaps. <laughs> who is the loser in that question? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> who made out like a bandit? Uh, it also stars Mike Mazarki as Mountain Ox, who uh, appeared later on in the movie Dick Tracy as Splitface. And I bet you role. they didn't put any prosthetics on him. Yeah. That's, yeah. You make a career like that. You go down to Hollywood, yeah. you look like yeah. that, you know, you, you get regular work. I, what, what else is he in? Like, he's, I, I don't know, I didn't IMDb him, but I you recognize him from something else, but. Well, other than Dick Tracy, probably every single role like that, where someone yeah, that's is fair. a big mountain ox-esque man who has to throw people on wires across entire city blocks <laughs> yeah, man, he's in a, he's in some lake at hot that's a that's he's a, in that's some like it hot? a big, big, yeah he, he says is, yeah. buttermilk no he's a if, if actually just a random if you check his imdb trivia he was credited with 170 roles he was a character actor in just about yeah. every movie yeah. or tv show that yeah, came out that's surprising time. like he's good he's good in this as for the character he's playing does not surprise me at all so music by the sherman brothers Famously for doing some of the best Disney music at the time. They did uh, Mary Poppins. They did the old Winnie the Pooh shorts. They did a bunch of the music from Disneyland rides. Like it's a small world. Um, They also wrote the Ringo Starr classic. uh, She's 16. She's beautiful. And she's mine. One of the creepiest (laughs) uh, songs you're ever going to hear from the 70s. Um, But yeah, so they're doing music for this. However, I could not tell. However, yes, let me just clarify. However, music is also being done by the composer, George Brune, who did the score uh, with lyrics by Mel Levin. And we'll get to this distinction, I think, between those two things. 
Starting right <laughs> off the bat, you turn this thing on on Disney Plus, and you immediately get the this program contains negative depictions warnings. So, welcome to our favorite Disney game. Let's spot the racism. <laughs> which we're going to be playing for the rest of this film. After we get the warning about how there are negative depictions in this film that they claim they have left in in order to ensure that these are not forgotten, it is to create a conversation about them, and it is not to sweep them under the rug, but to maintain that they were wrong then and they are wrong now. However, it's a lie, because they did edit this film. They did take out negative racial depictions in this film. Just not all of them <laughs> for some reason, which we will get to. It's baffling. Yeah. After the warning, we come to our opening credits. Opening credits. First image, The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin. And we see a very dapper butler gentleman facing off against a grizzly bear. Oh, yeah. These this are all... never happens in the film. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was actually, no. my first note I made about this was uh, I am sold by this opening song and the pictures, like the op- the title cards. But then, like, two seconds after they started the title cards, I was like, okay, yeah, no, I'm not. Like, it was such a high note. I was like, this butler taking on a grizzly bear with an umbrella? Let's do this. And then, like, it just goes downhill from the opening frame of this movie. How can you promise that this movie involves a butler fighting a grizzly bear (laughs) with his umbrella and then not deliver on that promise? Yeah. It is heartbreaking for the audience. These opening credits are just a series of undelivered promises. It is a series of checks that this movie cannot catch. Because after this, we get our credit that says music by the Sherman Brothers. Music by the Sherman Brothers, that's amazing. And then underneath it, it says additional music by Kyle Levin and George Broom. And the thing is, is that 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 opening theme song is not by the Sherman Brothers, which means the songs that play throughout because it's just the opening theme song over and over and over again is yeah. not by the Sherman brothers. It's this incredibly, in my opinion, terrible yep. song by Mal Levin and George Bruins. No offense to them, but it's a terrible song where every single line either has way too many syllables or way too few syllables. There is no <laughs> line that has the correct <laughs> amount of syllables for the meter that they are writing this song in. <laughs> It's it's bizarre. I don't understand how, like, you want to take another take at that? You know, maybe just just think of another word that doesn't have seven syllables that you don't <laughs> have in your meter. It's it's not a very good song, and yet it continues over and over and over again throughout this entire the, movie. One of the other title uh, credits uh, during this title sequence was uh, whoever did the titles, they got the credit, the credit titles and things. That's what it, yeah. That's what it was. Whoever well, did that, the, it was the, probably the interstitials. The interstitials were done by the same person that did the titles. So that's per, yeah. perhaps what titles and things means. Yeah, and things. It was titles and things. And I was like, what are these other things? And then yes, the interstitials, as you said. But then also the cartoon Cupid, that stupid yeah. fucking guy with the trumpet. Oh, yeah, that oh. guy did it too. I, I made a note every time that came oh, out. God. I hated that so much. It was the it was the worst. It's. It's certainly not good, and I do not mean to make (laughs) a comparison to associate quality one with the other, but I have to say that the vibe of the animations in this has a very kind of Monty Python-esque feel to it. It's all, But it would be like if Monty Python just was not funny or particularly creative. 
I, uh, I I will give the opening title credits one shout out, and I did actually like the credit for Edward Coleman, who was the director of photography, was actually an old sco- an old timey ca- mm-hmm. pinhole camera that when the smoke blew, it is his name, and I was like, and it was a camera, and I was like, that is clever, yeah. like that. I actually really enjoyed that. They if did. you actually watched, they had a little animation like that for all of the uh, the credits. So like the it pr- wasn't the... everyone. Yeah, you're right. It was some of them. It was some of them. The uh, the editor, the production designer, they got the editor got scissors. The production designer got like paint, uh, and then like props got a chair or something. And then they all like the chair broke. Like it went through the list. Those yeah. were cool. Yeah, but I started. I started taking notice. I was like, oh, this titles and things guy. Eh, he's got some skill. He's got he's got some skill with titles, and he's got some skill with things. He can do both. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> continuing on my theme of these opening titles making promises that will never come to fruition, I did make a note that the lyrics of this opening song, praising Bullwhip Griffin, say that mm-hmm. he is a man who became a legend, who had accomplishments that no one will ever forget. None of those happen in this movie. Nothing no. happens in this movie to make him a legend short of beating up an intellectually disabled man that makes a small group of people very happy but other than um, that he does zero things uh, to be fair he the greatest credit of all it happens off camera just before the end credits it's like oh yeah and then he rebuilt san francisco and made a golden bridge the, with a statue of himself <laughs> yeah, that's the end of the movie when the song comes back and says Oh yeah! After the movie ends, here's all of his accomplishments. Why didn't you show us those yeah, accomplishments? They didn't show anything. Sang a song, be like, "We're gonna show you the legend of Bullwhip Griffin." And then after they show you nothing, they come back in and they're like, "Oh right, the legend. It's that he built San Francisco," <laughs> <laughs> which didn't happen in the movie. That is exactly no. what the, that is. Like they 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 talk about all his accomplishments, and then they actually talk about like him opening the door i like the transition of that song like they're like they start singing as the guy the lawyers walk uh driving up in his buggy down to yeah. the, the judge's house or whatever the house right um they like they're like and he's standing at the door he's about to open the door for the lawyer <laughs> like they just go yeah. on it's like hey that's our hero right there well, it has him. the vibe of like the family guy sketch of randy newman singing about what he sees that's exactly you it know? that's <laughs> exactly it <laughs> like it's just like bullwhip griffin standing at the door gonna let in the lawyer gonna start the movie it's a lot and it is certainly creative i think the credits are actually pretty good overall. They set the movie up in a way that the movie just is not able to deliver on. One more note I want to make on the theme song, though. Uh, although I kind of hate the song itself, I do have to compliment the fact that I am 99% positive that it includes Thurl Ravenscroft as the baritone voice, uh, which you may know as the voice of Tony the Tiger. I'm fairly confident as him because he also was the baritone voice in Grim Grinning Ghosts, uh, the mm. Walt Disney Haunted Mansion song. Yes, now that you say that, Which you're sounds right. like the exact same barbershop group that is singing this song. He's also the singing voice in The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Yes, he? he is. Yes, he is. We yeah. come in to the mansion where we are greeted at the door by Mr. Eric Griffin, the butler of the now-deceased Lord of the Manor. Uh, and the lawyer has come in to read the will to all of his employees and his two surviving grandchildren, which is Jack Flag and Jack's sister Arabella Flag. Which brings me to my next question. 
what is the age difference between Jack Flag and Arabella Flag? Because Jack is apparently 12, and his sister is played by the professor of psychology from the movie that came out the, pretty much the same year. I mean, the number 26 comes to mind, but I don't know if that's actually said in the I'm not, movie. I don't think I ever heard an age. It could be 26. It wouldn't surprise yeah, me. I wasn't paying attention that that much, so I couldn't tell you for sure. But she looks like she's in her 30s. Yeah, because she is. Mm-hmm. Like, reasonably? The actress actually is in her early 30s. And uh, Roddy yeah. McDowell is uh, almost 40. And I think they're supposed to be the same age. They're both su- yeah. supposed to be the same age because they went to school together, I think. They make reference to the fact that she knew him when he was in grade six or when he was nine years old or something. And he gave her a locket when they were in primary school together. Presumably they grew up together because his father was also the butler of the same family. Um, yes. So they've known each other. They're approximately the same age. He's almost 40. And her younger brother is 12. There is a massive, massive age difference Mm -hmm. there. It's a little weird. Does it ever explain, like, because there's two surviving heirs, his grandkids, right? So it never happens, doesn't say how many kids this guy had and why they're all dead. (laughs) No, we don't know what happened to any of them (laughs) other than he is now hunting that painting. Uh, I, I assumed it was something like that. And like very, very obviously haunting a painting. Like it is, he's like, that. that is not a subtle ghost. <laughs> no, 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 no. That is a full, full fledged haunting. Although it only changes to three different things. It, uh, I-, I was hoping like when it changed the first time, I was like, wait, did that painting change? And I like rewound it. It was like, it totally did change. I dug that gag. That was a sweet gag. I know we'll go into it right away. Yeah. But I, I. That was that was a good laugh. The first one, when she cuts to him, she's like, oh, uh, an angel, that man. And then it's him frowning, and then it's like, wah, wah. I was like, okay. Yeah, funny. so the gag is that uh, there's this big painting of the, the lord, the now-deceased lord of this manor, and he's a very stern-looking man. Uh, but as things unfold during the reading of the will, as comical <laughs> things, I suppose, happen the painting changes its its demeanor and it's it's uh the look on its face it changes to being having yeah. a sly smile to having a big old grin at one point depending <laughs> on how much fun this haunted painting is having at the moment we're led to believe that this guy was a jerk just a giant asshole i really don't know like he it's a confusing scene that i think is supposed to be funny and Although, yeah, the painting gag is a little funny. It yeah. certainly gives off conflicting direction on what this guy was supposed to be like. Because the the plot of the scene is they read out the will and he's left his entire fortune to his employees and his kids. And he's been extremely generous. He's left each of his employees 50000 then the next one 100000 then the next one 500000 And he's left Bullwhip Griffin. Yeah, when it gets to Bullwhip, he says he'll leave you $500,000 as long as, and I know this to be true, you won't even raise an eyebrow at the the sound of it. Right? Yeah. And he's just. And Roddy McDowell does not raise an eyebrow. He does not bat an eye. Just straight faced. I was like, okay, hey, that's a good one. And that's a good uh, one. 
And then the gag is, as soon as the will is read, the lawyer reveals, oh, but actually he was broke. And so he didn't have any of this money. And uh, you don't have anything. We're taking the house. Everyone is fired. <laughs> and then it goes, wah, 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 and then it cuts to the painting and the haunted painting is laughing at him. Yeah, exactly. So I guess he was a jerk. Yeah. Who was just did this as a well, lark. Yeah. No, he he seemed like a big old jerk face, but they they kind of liked him. It seemed like the staff. So it's like kind of conflicting, you know, you don't like this mm-hmm. seems to be his last, uh, his last joke, you know, he gets the last laugh in literally yeah. because his painting is laughing. And I really, I'm not even sure really what impression we're supposed to have gotten of this man, because later on when they talk about him, the other thing is that Arabella says, well, you know, he went off to sea when he was 11, he had all these adventures. He would be really happy if I went out to California and became yeah. a dancing girl. And it's yeah. like, would he? Like I, is that what he wants? And it's it's not to be paternalistic, but is that really the adventure he wants for you to go out to California and be a dancing girl? Because it's not even that she says I'm going to have an adventure. She's like I'm going to go out to California where there's lots of men and a woman can you know make okay. some green. Um, we uh we did skip ahead one scene. It's very small. Uh, it's like the first thing that happens. Um, the lawyer comes in. And uh, Bullwhip has to go get Jack from his bedroom. Yeah. And I knew we were in trouble from that scene because that director did not direct Jack to face the camera at all in that entire scene. His back is to the camera. He is not looking at it. I didn't, you didn't get a clear shot of him until it was the two shot of them sitting down at the will reading. I was like, okay, yeah. this is not a steady hand that's directing this film. We, we might be in for some trouble here, folks. Well, he's a TV director. And uh, he also, it's not even just, like you said, he's not facing the camera. The the camera, they're, they're doing it all in, in one setup. Yeah, it's a wide. It's a yeah. wide angle, basically... They're basically shooting it like TV with three walls in yeah. a room, and they just have the camera out with the audience, essentially. And Jack is supposed to be learning how to pan for gold because he's read it in with a chamber pot. With a chamber pot. That's a that's a chamber pot. Okay, I wasn't sure. So this is <laughs> panning for gold with the chamber pot. It's a chamber pot to which she says, "If you want better luck with that, try soap and water until you find the nuggets." Yep. <laughs> And he's playing with a chamber pot. And I wrote and underlined that because I was like, okay, this is the type of movie we're in. Jack hasn't really been given instructions on what he's supposed to be doing with this chamber pot. No. Uh, He has the script. He knows that the script says, uh, shake it from side to side and like drain out some of the water because that's literally what he's saying out loud. But his movements <laughs> He's just make his no stage sense. Direction. He's not reading. His movements script. make no sense. Nobody's explained to this kid what he's supposed to be doing. And no. you're exactly right. I mean, it's a director's failure because this is a young kid giving this performance. And it's rough. It's a rough performance. But it, you have to put it on the director more than the kid. Uh, the kid's doing a lot of gee golly, mister. Gee golly, mister. And I think if I read correctly, this was actually his last yeah. his last film. Um and he's he's very fidgety. He's very pushy, and he leads in a lot of lot of oh gee golly, Mister! Like he he pushes everything. Yeah. But he has the most piercing blue eyes I've ever seen on a human being. Gee golly, was I like? Okay. <laughs> oh, dude, did you see them? Did you? No, see them? I saw the eyes. I will agree. For all those listening, they're very haunting eyes. All right. Yeah. 
It was know. insane. So it made perfect sense. I was like, this is why this kid is in films, right? Like, you cast the eyes, right? You, you cast the eyes. And I think by this point, Kurt Russell had aged out of doing these kind of roles. So it's like, well, get me his non-union blue-eyed equivalent. Yeah. Enter Brian Russell as Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was kind of an overall note. I think, like, the more seasoned actors in this, like, I mean, we'll kind of get to it. But performance-wise, I actually – I thought, like, Susan Plachette and Roddy McDowell were actually quite good in this movie. They had great chemistry. They played really I well together. I will 100% compliment Roddy McDowell in this movie. I think he was actually – fantastic there's not a lot going on in this movie like the plot is paper thin and yet he manages to make moments out of every single thing he does every single line of dialogue every single movement every single stage direction just crossing the screen he's dynamic he finds some way to make it interesting it's fantastic performance i wish it was in a better movie yeah and and even his performance aged well, like as you were saying, kind of with uh, Blackbeard's ghost, like Dean Jones is very 1950s acting. Yeah. Um, I thought Roddy's performance actually aged pretty yeah. well. Uh, the film, not no, so much. No, I thought he was great. I thought uh, Suzanne didn't have a lot to do. She has a nice kind of song in the third act. Uh, we got some other good character actors like Richard Hyden, who, you know, he does what he does, but he comes in and he does it so that's all fine the performances in this aren't really that bad beyond the kid but like there's just nothing going on this is this is a rough film all around the other note to make about this scene with jack is that jack is learning how to pan for gold because he's getting it from his his 1849 comic book about bullwhip brannigan is the name of this character this hero who went out into the west and fought grizzly bears and panned for gold and and had all of these heroic adventures and this is who jack is idolizing and who's looking up to and who he's going to try to uh set himself up as moving forward going back to our scene with the lawyer we have the reveal that the family is broke they have to move out of the house and so jack immediately decides i am going to make our family's fortune back by going out west just like my hero bullwhip brannigan I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going to go to California. So that brings us to the scene uh, at the port, essentially. They go to the port. Okay, so what jumped out at you at this scene, Robbie? They put money into the set. Like the production design in this movie, they didn't really spare expense. I thought they actually did a lot of stuff like the scenes where Jack is crawling along the water. And I was like, okay, this is actually like some pretty good production design. I also thought at this point in time, I paused it and I was like, how long is this movie? An hour and 50 minutes. And I said, (laughs) Jesus, I thought old movies were supposed to be short. Holy crap. Because even then we were, what, five, ten minutes into this movie and I was already checking the time. Also, the last thing that popped out at me, I was like, the the Quentin character, what'd you say, Richard Hyden? Yeah, Richard Hyden. Yeah. The Vincent Price looking dude. Yeah, I was like, I was like, who is the scary old man? Who does he remind me of? And then it took me two seconds, and it was Richard Price. So we got a lot of things in that in that one scene um, that popped out at me. Not to mention the fact that what year is it supposed to be? Eighteen forty nine. Eighteen forty nine, and people are dropping twelve hundred dollars for a ticket to California. So yes. that is what jumped out at did me. Did you do? Uh... I did my patented. Sean adds up how much money we're talking about. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I because I did I did write down, and I even thought I was like, he just gave his butler half a million dollars. How much money does he have in like this so, year? Yes, we get to the port. They are auctioning off a ticket on the next boat to San Francisco. 
they're going to start the bidding at $500. $500 in 1849 is the equivalent of $19,000. Jesus. Today. Wow. That's what they're starting the bidding at. Okay. The ticket goes for $1,200, which is the equivalent of $45,000 in today's currency, which this man had on him <laughs> in cash in and cash. was like counting it to like double check how much he had as if he was trying to see if he had enough for a second cup of coffee. Like he's like, uh, yeah, I got enough. That's $45,000 that he's counting out in cash. That this like bum at the yeah, docks has. That he then loses and does not seem distraught in the way one would if they lost approximately $45,000. Um. Okay, that's insane. What were they expecting to make? Like, I, I didn't do any gold rush statistics, but like, they they have all this cash just lying around, equivalent of forty five thousand dollars, and they're going to hope to equally make way more than that. Well, if you if you struck yeah. the mother load, yeah, clever, you could make <laughs> millions, right? Like, that's the thing. If you stuck struck all of that gold, you could you could make millions. You could be a millionaire even right. in eighteen forty nine, which is what presumably these people were going for. Now, I will make a couple of qualifications. So one thing to remember, though, is that in 1849, a boat to San Francisco from Boston is like a six-month trip, all right? Yeah, because you have to go all the way around. You go, yeah, you go through Panama. No, you don't even go through Panama. They don't have the Panama Canal. You go... No, the, the, the Panama Canal didn't, didn't exist. exist. Yeah, you're going all the way down yeah, around South America. You're literally on a steamship all the way around the continent to get to California. It's a six-month trip. There was no railways, I guess. I was like, how long would it have taken, like Oregon Trail style, to get from Boston to California? They would have died of dysentery. So as a rough estimate, I tried to figure out, well, how much would a six-month trip cost today like in, i'm not going to compare the cost of getting from boston to california how much would a six month trip cost today so a cruise an all expense cruise which is what like they're getting their food on this boat too remember so a cruise mm -hmm. is about three thousand dollars a month for a month for three thousand dollars that's like a low end you that know. is still cheaper than rent in vancouver so yeah i go was for it. gonna say <laughs> and that's your room and board six months yeah would then be $18,000. And so they started this at the equivalent of $19,000. So it is not totally insane that that would be the price of a ticket from Boston to California at the time. That being said, it ends up going for $45,000 in today's money, which is quite a lot of money. Yeah. And nobody seems to be acting like that's how much money they're talking about. <laughs> that's the biggest thing. And as we kind of hit at here, this, you know, uh, uh, one scene player buys this ticket and he immediately has the ticket stolen by the villain of our piece, who is Judge Higgins, who's clearly not actually a judge, but they keep calling him Judge Higgins throughout the entire movie, despite the fact <laughs> that everyone should know he's clearly not a judge. I like that. They kept calling him Judge Higgins. It was great. It could be like <laughs> Judge Nelson situation going on. That just could be his name that worked in his like nefarious paper. <laughs> you mean like Judge Reinhold? Yeah, yeah Judge Reinhold. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, the, the Jack and Jack sneaks onto the ship because he obviously does not have $45,000 to buy a ticket. And he has followed. Yeah, Vincent Price follows him because he's sneaking aboard. Yes, yes. So, but he he has paid to be on the boat, which 
did confuse okay. me. Has he? Because I had a question he, about this. Okay. Because he has a room and board and meals, and he doesn't. He has live a there room and board time. and meals, but do we know he paid? I thought he was thought... also sneaking onto the boat. So I think I think the reason he snuck onto the boat was because he was so afraid of getting robbed. He didn't want anyone to rob him as he got on, so he could get to his room and hide. Okay. That was that was that what I sense. thought because he says to Jack like. The hounds of hell will follow me like, no, not the terrors you have seen. Like, he's so... And he's I, referring I, to Judge Higgins? Yeah, he's referring <laughs> to Judge Higgins. That bumbling buffoon of a jackass. To yeah. be fair, Judge Higgins, like, up until the very end, which we will get to, gets away with quite a bit. Um, yeah, he does. He's a good con artist. A shit um, pickpocket, yeah. but a good con, con artist. I, uh, the thing that I actually first noticed about this opening scene was I didn't actually have to pause and go back. Because I was like, okay, Matt painted. No, that's a matte painting over an actual dock because yeah. you could actually see the water of the in between the boats and the docks yeah. flickering and moving. Yeah, and then the matte painting over top, and I was like, "Oh, this was actually this made me actually pause the movie. This was pretty yeah. neat." The production design of this movie is top notch. Like that's where they put the money. It clearly looks really good. And I think something that helped with that too was a note you brought up on the last one was the transfer on this was really good. Like I thought this film yeah. actually like I, the I noticed that right. I was like, "Wow, this film looks." like good it's not great bar a couple like really weird focus like pulls later on in the movie uh it's like not grainy it's very clear one thing that i that i will comment on because we're talking about the transfer and then talking about the way that this movie looks um watching these things on disney plus and this jumped out at me uh with the last episode we did which was blackbeard's ghost um it has an, a very strange aspect ratio when you watch it in full screen it is mm. 1.75 to 1 so it doesn't full up a tradition like it doesn't fill a traditional widescreen all the way to the sides. There's black bars on the sides and on the top and bottom. What was happening in the 60s, apparently, when things moved to widescreen, things that were shot anamorphically were obviously 2.23 or whatever. Um, and things that were still shot spherically were shot on 35 millimeter film and would come out Academy ratio 1.33 to 1. But most filmmakers, studios, and theaters at the time wanted to give the impression that everything was widescreen to make it look like it was cinemascope or anamorphic. Mm. And so they matted everything down to widescreen. Um, and most, by the end of the 60s, most uh, theaters and studios had decided on that being 1.85 to 1, mm. which is what a standard non-anamorphic widescreen is today still. However, Disney apparently just hated that <laughs> and insisted on everything that they made being continued to shot on spherical lenses, being shot for a 1.33 to 1 Academy ratio, presumably because they're all going to be shown on the wonderful world of Disney anyway. Yeah. yeah. And then he allowed theaters, when the prints were sent to theaters, theaters were allowed to mat them down to 1.75 so and it was optional how much they matted them so if you went to one theater more of the top and bottom would be missing than another theater they were allowed to mat based on whatever they wanted up to 1.75 to 1 that was the maximum that disney would allow um and on disney plus now they have matted them to 1.75 but actually they have the original spherical frame that could they could be showing this at 1.33 and we would have more on the top and bottom, which is how oh. it was originally shot, intended by Disney. Crazy. 
I just thought that was fascinating because when I was watching it, I was like, what is this 1.75? Because why is there black bars on both the top and the bottom? Nothing fits. It didn't make any sense. And I had to yeah. look into it. Oh, that's so cool. there's a little there's a little trivia for you. All right. So Jack sneaks onto the boat, followed by a bear, Shakespeare style. Um, <laughs> that being Richard Hyden, Quentin Bartlett is the character's name. And then Roddy McDowell, uh, the butler, shows up to try to bring him back home because they've discovered that he's run, up, run off. He's going to try to go to California. So the butler sneaks onto the ship to try to... He doesn't to... sneak on the ship. He just... He doesn't sneak onto it. Yeah. He talks to the captain and, and he's like, I give you my word. I will not be off. I'll be off before you depart. This guy, like, he's so prim and proper that he could basically talk his way into anything because they're just like, this guy's not gonna... He's not gonna screw me over. And if you watch the movie... Bullwhip Griffin is actually a man of his word the whole way through. Yeah, he doesn't screw anybody over until he screws over everybody at the yes. very end of the film. Yeah, yeah. And steals all of their money to build San Francisco. Yeah, which the movie doesn't acknowledge, but we will get to that. Uh, but until that moment, he's a very nice man who always keeps his word and always does what's right. Um, so he goes onto the boat and he tells the captain that he promises he's going to get off. He's just going to find Jack and bring him off. But... After sneaking onto the boat, he is knocked out by Richard Hyden. Um, and he doesn't come to until after the boat has left. And so now they're on the boat. They can't get off because the boat is already at sea. And uh, they go to the captain and they tell the captain, uh, please let us off at the next port of call. Captain's furious. He says, you're going to be working in the gallows. And Griffin convinces him, well, why don't you let me be your cook instead? And he's such a good cook the captain actually won't let him leave until they get to California. So that is the logical premise that yeah. forces them to go all the way to California. And, and the reason why they can't go back is because the captain says that you'll see all these ships in port in California and San Francisco is because no crew wants to go back on the boats. They just want to go pan for gold. So that's why they've got all those shots of all those ships in the port in San Francisco. No one's leaving. Everyone's just going to get the gold. I thought that was kind of cool. Although you would think that the tickets would be a lot cheaper then because yeah. jumping ahead at the end of the movie when they're trying to get tickets back to Boston, those tickets are going for $250. Now, to be fair, that is half of what the tickets from Boston to San Francisco were. But if they really are desperate to get crew, you would think it would be a lot easier to get a ride back to Boston, especially working as a cook like he did on the way there. But Yeah, but then there's no sailors to actually sail the ship because they're all panning for gold. That's the that's the thing. Yeah, fair enough. Fair oh, enough. I was going to say, I thought that was cool because like the, they have a couple of mat paintings and then lots of boats. Uh, like I think there was a one or two real boats, I think, in the harbor. Um, as Bobby said, it was really cool. I, uh, I dug that shot. They did actually yeah. later on. Uh, they did actually have footage of a, what, what was made to look like a vintage old like steamship going through the harbor. Like it, they did actually shoot some footage yeah, of a boat cool. going through um, it as well. You know, it's funny, Rob, that you said uh, that uh, Judge Higgins is an excellent con artist and a terrible pickpocket because I have in my notes right here, Higgins is the worst pickpocket. Yeah. Uh, he's terrible. <laughs> he, really he stole the ticket <laughs> yeah. for that boat. He like he like reached into that guy's pocket three like four times. Or five, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not even that he's a pickpocket, and it's not even that he was obviously pickpocketing him. It was like he missed the first two times, <laughs> and he had to go back into the pocket yeah. to like try and get yeah. it again. Um, do you guys uh, want a little character bit with the captain? Um, the, like the last scene uh, that the, that he's with, basically, um, they give him his whatever breakfast or something and then give pours him a cup of tea pours it into captain, a bowl for whatever whatever reason he 
he pours it into the plate and then drinks it from the plate. What was that? <laughs> I also wrote that down because it rewound it and I watched it again to try to figure out what was happening. And all that was happening was he pours his coffee into the saucer, yeah. the, the saucer plate, and then drinks it out of the plate instead of the cup. And then has a big old smile yeah, on he his like, face. He like, he's he's like, look around. He's like, is anybody watching me? No. <laughs> yeah, as if it's it's a it's a sneaky little treat that he's given himself here. I don't know what that was supposed to what be. What was that? I mean, I, Bobby, I, I, what, what do you think that was? I I don't know what that was, and I doubt he did either. <laughs> I'm sure the director was just like, "Yeah, do this," and he was like, "Uh, okay." He's like, "Yeah, then smile, great, cool, print." Next up, we're moving <laughs> it, on. It was it was certainly business, and it was business that somehow went through the entire production, went through editors, directors, <laughs> and producers, and everybody was like, "Keep that in." Which fits my canon. Like he walked into the editing room, he's like, "But you kept my saucer bit and right, good, that's gold." <laughs> That stays. Like, it was his one insisting thing. Like, he was like, I don't care what else you cut out of this movie. That saucer bit is, is oh, it's going to get such a laugh. Which is like, I mean, I mean, maybe they shot that scene first, which is why there was no direction for the rest of the picture. Because he was like, no, I got it. That's that's my, yeah, I got it. I got the it shot. Has, it has, like, the captain is never referenced again. It's his, like, last shot in the film. It goes to a close-up of him. Like, that was intentional, and they left it in the movie for no reason. The best I can understand is maybe it's supposed to be a joke comparing the aristocracy of Griffin with the lower cat class standard of the captain. So the captain isn't used to that, drinking that out, out of, of like, a too. fancy cup, like a teacup. After six months? Yeah, you're right. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the best yeah. that I can understand, is that the captain is so ill- fitted for the fancy dinner that griffin has prepared for him that he's pouring it into a saucer and then like slurping it like he's the beast from <laughs> beauty and the beast when he first has dinner with bell you know <laughs> uh that is essentially the best that i can do to explain that yeah. scene it's a very strange there's scene. also a scene because the um bullet griffin uh, he writes a letter back to uh jack's sister i forget her name but arabella uh, arabella yeah um and this was a good scene. This was one scene where the director was on his A-game because uh, it cuts back to Arabella and the maid and they're sitting around what is now the empty parlor room where the lawyer read the will, right? Because there's furniture movers coming in. They're buying out basically all the possessions so they can make whatever money they can off of the, their last belonging. And as they're reading the letter, uh, the furniture movers keep taking more and more of the surroundings away from them. So they take the table away. Arabella grabs the envelope off the table without even looking at it. Then the, they take the chair away from the maid and the maid stands up. And then Arabella, yeah, it does the same thing. And so they're just left standing in this empty, empty room. room by the end. It is but funny. Yeah, that's a good one. Empty room with the exception of the haunted painting. And at, the, at this point, like they've been gone at sea and Arabella and the housekeeper have been living alone in the house with the haunted painting. And my note at this point was, at what point does nobody question that it's supernatural? <laughs> because they're just sitting in that room with the only remaining two chairs staring at it. And it changes faces a few times. Yes, well, which is why the mover wants to purchase this supernatural haunted painting. He wants the frame. He says the frame first, but I think that's like a sales tactic. He was like, yeah, I want that frame. I'll, I'll take the painting inside too. Yeah. Uh, five Although to be fair, $5 at the time yeah. is like $200. So uh, it's not 
The housekeeper yeah. made off made off like a bandit. Because the housekeeper ends up selling the haunted painting to the movers for approximately $200 in today's money. And they take off with Grandpa, who's now yeah. grinning because I think he's going to haunt more people. Like, <laughs> yeah. His legacy of haunting you know, continues. Well, it's, it's, it's probably going to be like some sort of like Michigan frog, you know, one froggy afternoon style scenario <laughs> where this mover is is going to have a haunted painting that will you know change uh his appearance will smile on command and then whenever he shows it to somebody else it will just be the same stern face and it will drive this man insane going off of that arabella decides to follow them to california so she gets in the next boat and then she disappears from the movie for the next act she's basically <laughs> never seen until yeah. the third act of the movie until the third act yeah uh, we cut now to California after they've done their six-month trip and nope. they've arrived wait. there. Wait, wait. There's a couple of things we got to say about the plot okay. here. Okay. Uh, Vincent Price has a map that uh, will lead them. It has been revealed at this point. Lead them to the mother load, uh, as you said earlier uh, in yep. your cheeky reference there. Um, and that's why he snuck in is because he's got this map uh, that – he wants to keep hidden, but he confides in uh, Bullwhip Griffin and Jack uh, saying, you know, we're partners now. Uh, we keep each other safe um, and we'll go in equal share for everybody uh, in this gold if we can get off this boat. But one thing I did notice was this was the scene, the one scene that they decided to do the camera movement to to imitate the ocean waves. The whole th- time they've been on the boat is just a static locked off camera not moving except for this one scene where they just say oh shouldn't we do this yeah we probably should do you think it's going to be distracting no i don't think so we'll just do this for one and then they cut to other shots in the boat camera is completely locked off and then they cut back to the vincent price's quarters and the camera is moving around and i was like okay why'd we do this why if you've gone that far without doing it, and then we'll just do it for this one scene. Because the director just remembered it. It's exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. And then also, this was, I, I, I corrected myself, but uh, there was also another note that uh, uh, Bullwhip Griffin, uh, I can't just call him Bullwhip. And I don't want to just call him Griffin, so I have to say his full name. Um, <laughs> Bullet Griffin had a painting of Arabella. And, and <laughs> so I am not an expert in 1849 paintings. Uh, <laughs> You're not? <laughs> but that painting, it doesn't seem very good. <laughs> it seems like a child painted it. It seems very like paint by number. Like it's very primary colors. Like it's... It almost looks like he had a painting, it got damaged, and then he he tried to recreate it (laughs) without any artistic (laughs) skills. Because you can kind of tell that it's her, like, but it also, it's very cartoonish. Like, it's just like, oh, there's eyes, and in the middle of the eyes are a black dot, and those are her pupils. And then, you know, and I guess maybe that's all you could do in 1849, you know? <laughs> no, they had the haunted ghost painting, which looked pretty good, man. They they spent all the money on the haunted painting. Well, maybe so. when she dies and she haunts that painting, the painting <laughs> will look better. It'll- it will, like manifest itself that's right yeah as her appearance in a more fulsome way i guess that would make more sense and then this is the point where um 
in the film where the judge is lit in the fire on the boat. Yes. Correct? Just as they're about to yeah, dock. Yeah, he, he lights the fire on the boat to steal the map from uh, Vincent Price. Yeah, so he creates a fake fire. Yeah. And then uh, while everyone's trying to put out the fire, he sneaks into Vincent Price's room and then knocks him out while Vincent Price is panicked because he thinks that the boat is, is sinking and burning down. And then Judge Higgins steals the map and gets on a boat mm-hmm. and rows to shore. Okay. One thing I got to say about Judge, H- Judge, H- Judge Higgins now uh, is we meet him three more times, I think, in three different disguises throughout the course of the film. And I really, really did actually dig how, as the movie progressed, he got less and less facial hair. So he starts off as Judge Higgins with a full bushy beard. And by the last disguise, he's clean shaven. It's like the opposite of disguises it's so good i actually dug his disguise modus operandi is entirely facial hair based and he doesn't have fake beards and so it's exactly eventually by the end he would he ran out of disguises because his disguise is he ran out of disguises because he's clean shaven he starts with a full beard and then he's like i need a disguise so then he cuts it into a colonel sanders style beard with like the the big mustache and, and the goatee and then he cuts that into just the mustache, I believe, uh, which is his yeah. dentist uh, disguise. And then the fourth time he cuts off the mustache and he's clean shaven. And at that point, he's out of disguises. And that's why the movie's over, because they finally defeated him. They got rid of all of his hair. Yeah. <laughs> because they because they shot it in real time. And he's like, well, I can't grow the beard. I shaved everything. I guess the movie's <laughs> over because there's nowhere else for me to go. I'm clean shaven now. So he takes off with the the map. They go ashore in San Francisco and they need to raise up some money so that they can chase after him because they can't afford any transportation or any supplies. And so they discover that tub baths are going for $10 in San Francisco. A tub bath. The sign specifies it is a tub bath. Bring your own soap, which means it is only supplies supplying water. Hot water. That's it. Hot water for ten bucks, yeah. which is the equivalent of almost four hundred dollars, yeah, in today's money. And, and the soap was spelled S O P E. I did like that. So four hundred dollars for a bath. I, I I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> would you have a four hundred dollar bath? At this point, Bullwhip is able to be like, well, if that's what they're charging for a bath, and then he charges what I suppose would be the equivalent of like five or six hundred dollars a haircut and people line up through the town people yeah. line up. where are they getting this money how does the economy in this town work all of these people look like they are dirt broke they are greasy old men who are covered in mud and they apparently have the equivalent of five six hundred dollars to spend on a haircut and they don't even think twice they're just like sure and by the end of the day, he has like 10 pounds in gold. I'm like, you don't need to pan. You won. Yes. You don't need the mother load. Yes. Go back to Boston and buy the house. Just just keep giving haircuts all day, every day to these people, charging $10. There. Done. Right? Like, Well, he thinks of that later. Too late. Yeah. Yeah. After he's had his dumb adventures, he's just like, we should have just kept on cutting hair. <laughs> we were making money hand over fist. Yeah. It's crazy. They, they, they thought of it way too late. Yeah. I don't get how they could be so stupid to see all of this money that they've just accumulated. And it's actual gold because there's no actual bills. I mean, they're, the guy they're paying the them top, in solid gold nuggets. They're paying them in solid gold. And and how they weigh out, I guess, $10, they just assume it's roughly that amount of gold, whatever. But they have like 
a bag of gold. They have a bundle of gold by the time this this haircut endeavor is done. As Bobby said, just go home. You did this in an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If there was still a lineup, he said, I'm closed. And there's, yeah, there, there, there is business. There is still a lineup of Who people. Who still keep on paying $600 a piece for these haircuts. Oh, my God. To a point that by the, by the time they come back, they have driven the market down <laughs> so much. Because somebody heard about it. Somebody yeah. was like, they're paying $600 a haircut in San Francisco. Yeah. And every single barber in the entire country got on the next boat. Yeah, the, yeah, the, 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 the next boat was full of barbers. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out that at this point, I have seven notes left about the film. All of my notes were bef- prior to this, and I, I have been talking about a lot of them. Um, I have seven, and a lot of them are just like, what the fuck? Okay, fuck off. What? F- fuck this movie. And one yeah. is just, wow, with an ellipses. So uh, yep. I don't know how much more talking points I'm going to have to contribute to this film. <laughs> well, once they leave San Francisco, the rest of this movie is just a lot of racism. <laughs> yep. Yes, yeah, it is. In fact, I, I'm, I, one of my notes is simply just the words, oh, racism. So I, I do want to point out one other weird thing from this scene. So while um, Griffin and Jack are cutting hair and making an absolute fucking fortune doing it, um, the uh, uh, Bartlett, Vincent Price, Vincent Price is busking with uh, Shakespeare performances on the street corner. And he's obviously making no money doing that because he's standing in the middle of a San Francisco mud street. Because, because such is the way of a Shakespearean street performer to this very yes, day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, the only audience member you have is the old man who you are literally holding captive to listen to you finish the I mean, the you're not making barber money performing Shakespeare. That's all I'm going to say, okay? But here, here's what jumped out at me. And maybe this is a bit too nerdy, but it's super weird. So he stands up and he just does like a greatest hits of Shakespeare. He starts reading, uh, he starts reciting a Henry V monologue and then like after three lines transitions straight into to be or not to be from Hamlet. And then we cut back to him later and he's doing Merchant of Venice. But the weirdest part of this, so it's this greatest hits monologue, is he starts the very first thing he says, he stands up and he says Romans, countrymen and lovers. Which is from Julius Caesar, but it is not the famous Mark Antony speech from Julius Caesar, which begins, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. It is the Brutus speech from Julius Caesar, which Ah. is Shakespeare's intentional bad speech. The point of the play is that Shakespeare has Brutus stand up and give a bad speech, and then Mark Antony stands up and gives a bitch and awesome one and wins the crowd over and Brutus's speech <laughs> starts. <laughs> Roman so <he> started. <laughs> he started with an intentionally bad speech. Yes. So, <laughs> do you think he knew that or was that just his idea? <laughs> well, if it was intentional, it's a very clever, funny joke because yeah. in the scene, Nobody is buying what he's selling. So it's funny that he's reciting Brutus's speech and not Mark Antony's. But yeah. I just don't feel like this is the kind of movie that would make that That's joke. That so clever. it's a very weird thing. <laughs> I was very baffled by that. I, I almost wonder if that is actually, that could have been his own choice, him knowing what he was doing. Because one of the reasons it says Tony Hancock was fired was 
or fired in quotations so he could dodge the bullet that was this movie mm-hmm. was his erratic behavior and he apparently also struggled with the shakespearean dialogue in this scene yeah so i mean i almost wonder if he was like no 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 i i i, I know what i'm doing yeah i'll start i'll start with you the know bad what? speech that could have been richard hyden's own joke because he was a british stage performer he was a comedian he had shakespearean background he he might have done that as his own personal kind of inside joke. Okay, that's clever. He just nailed 100%. He is through and through a theater person. <laughs> to this day, they have not changed a bit at all. Um, I also loved his his outfit. Um, I love that he rocks that red velvet cape. He's got that vanity cane with the like lead handle on the end and the silk gloves and, the, and everything. And all I could think the whole time was you – why are you wearing a red cape when you are worried everybody in the world is looking for you to rob you? Just look for the guy in the red velvet cape standing on the soapbox. <laughs> Reciting Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> Literally asking everyone to look at him and saying, Romans, countrymen, and lovers, look at me. So at this point, what happens is that we are introduced to our villains-esque of the piece i mean uh obviously judge higgins is is the main villain but we're introduced to sam trimble who owns a local saloon he employs mountain ox played by mike mazurki who is appears to be a uh intellectually disabled man he's very uh slow but he's a very large man uh and he is introduced by throwing someone out of the saloon and basically across the street not not just across the street like down a whole city block yeah down down a city block uh, smashing a horse and cart in the way okay so then what <laughs> what happens is uh mountain ox wants to go out on the town and clean himself up and so he goes out to get one of these haircuts but by this point they've got enough money to continue on so they don't need to keep giving these haircuts. So uh, Griffin denies him a haircut and says, actually, we're closed. Mountain Ox uh, threatens to fight him. Um, he kind of grabs him. They get into a, a scuffle. Jack kicks Mountain Ox. And what happens is, is that uh, Griffin has been storing his his gold nuggets in his glove. The pile of gold he got from haircuts, his like... $40,000. His haircut gold, he's storing in his glove, and then he he basically smacks Mountain Ox with this glove of gold and knocks him out. He knocks him into a wagon down the street. He, he, he sends him flying a good 50 feet yeah. and knocks him unconscious, the first man to ever do so, which again hits on the point of, you have enough money to knock out Mountain Ox, the man who has never been knocked out. Go home. <laughs> you have won. won. All of this has is over. Why is this yeah. movie continuing for another hour yeah. by this point? Again, why the fuck is this movie so long? Because he knocks out Mount Knox, Sam Trimble wants uh, to basically promote him as a boxer. And they're going to have a, a a title match for the bare knuckle boxing, boxing cha- bare knuckle boxing champion of San Francisco. And he's going to give him a $2,000 purse. Uh, but Griffin already has $40,000 in his glove, so (laughs) (laughs) he doesn't need to do that, and he says, no, thank you, and they leave, and that will come back into play at the climax of the film. But they get on a cart, and just coincidentally, it's the exact same, so go ahead. Okay, I just gotta say, sorry. You called the climax of the film. I wouldn't necessarily call it the climax of the film. It's the end of the film. 
but I wouldn't call it the climax of the film. Yeah, it also is. It's unfair to call it the climax because it's also the last forty minutes of the film. It's so long. Yeah. It's so long. The they the movie just keeps going, and they just have a second movie with another nonsense dumb plot that doesn't mean anything. Before they leave with all of this glove money that they have, uh, they have to split up because they got some um, they got some intel from some locals about where Judge Higgins may have gone. But it's mixed up intel, and they tell them, well, he might have gone to Hangtown or Jimtown. There's a second town. I can't remember. But they, they have these two options, and then they're going to split up. And Bartlett is going to go to one of the towns, and Griffin and Jack are going to go to the other towns. And then they say, they specifically say... Keep in mind, keep in mind, Jack is not Bullock Griffin's son he has no like parental <laughs> guidance over this child he's just like yeah let's go on an adventure in california rather than taking you immediately home well he's his faithful ward robin style the director yeah. made batman 66 okay that okay. was the vibe he was going for here <laughs> but this this like uptight butler is just like yeah i'll kidnap this kid and go to california why not i know well he has no other family but yeah basically they're going after this treasure map with this 12 year old yep. kid uh, they split up. When they had 40 grand in their pockets, it doesn't to go home. They split up, and uh, as they split up, they say, okay, well, if one of us finds him, we'll leave a message at, you know, Fort Thompson, or whatever the name of the fort was. They specifically say this in the movie. And I point out that they specifically say this, because they did not fucking do this. <laughs> <laughs> And it is not a small, like, uh, uh, omission because they successfully find him. They successfully find all the gold. Very quickly, I might add. A year passes <laughs> and they never tell Bartlett <laughs> what the hell happened here. I mean, I understand they're just, they're coming up with an excuse to write him out of the movie because they don't want to have him continue on throughout the rest of the adventures because it's too many actors to keep track of i guess but whatever the reason is they they definitely screwed over this guy because they're like yeah we're definitely going to tell you when we find this gold they do not tell him nope they do not tell him and try to leave <laughs> they try to leave with the gold that they got from his <laughs> they said they're going to be partners uh so they they then get in a cart and they're going to go after judge higgins conveniently for some reason, Judge Higgins is in the same cart that they're in. Yeah, um, they just they just don't recognize him because he's incognito as Colonel Sanders at this yep. point. He's as Colonel yeah. Sanders, not a full bushy beard. Went he got a shave, probably cost him about fifteen dollars. Yeah, they, they they probably cut his yeah. hair. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second, I never even thought of that. They're the only barbers in town. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The plot hinges on them being the only barbers in town. <laughs> Who cut Judge Higgins' hair? This movie's so dumb. <laughs> okay. So after failing to notice that they cut Judge Higgins' hair, they come across him, and unfortunately, their wagon is stopped by banditos. A band of Mexican banditos. And the head bandito is played by our friend Joby Baker, Canadian Joby Baker in brownface. Spot yeah. that racism. <laughs> He's just doing yeah. Speedy Gonzalez. He is 
Yes. He is playing Speedy Gonzalez. Yeah. In brownface. Yes. It is not yeah. a pleasant scene. And it goes on for a very long time. I think they thought it was funny. <laughs> uh, they, and it is they not. definitely. It is not funny. They definitely thought it was funny. But he uh, takes all of their goods, including um, Judge Higgins' coat, which contains the map that he stole. They uh, uh, not managed... before, not before he shoots Judge, H- Judge Higgins' coat. Yeah, for refusing to give it up. Yeah, for refusing to give it up. The thing is, I'm not even sure how relevant any of that is. I, like, okay, so it 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 it, it is because it, it is, it, but I, it's it not is at a, all. It's not actually relevant, but it they, they make it. it is? They make yes. it like relevant. they t- they they talk as if it's relevant because what happens is he shoots the coat, and so he shoots a hole in their treasure island map, <laughs> and he shoots a hole right where the X is on the map. Now, ignoring the fact that if if that's where the X is, that's where the X is. Just go there. Yep. That's <laughs> where yeah. the X is. But ignoring that, let's just say that it's still not really relevant for the plot because no. basically immediately after discovering that the map is no longer any good, they find yep. the gold anyway. Even if like they find a gold, like <laughs> those, they find uh, a mother load. Those, like it's... those hills are lousy with gold. Like they, like judge Higgins oh my didn't God, have are to they do ever. any of this. He would have been totally Most fine. Most of this plot revolves around a treasure Island map that is pointless because literally everybody yeah. is tripping over gold in California because, in this movie. because you, you can make your fortune sitting on a barrel cutting hair. Yeah. You don't <laughs> because need, everybody so money. has pockets full of nuggets. They're literally <laughs> they're like, weighed down by it. Like the, the economy there is so strapped with gold that people are lining up to be like $15 a haircut. Sure. Not I'll only this, that. but here's the thing we are jumping ahead, but I'm going to point this out right now. They come across their gold accidentally while digging a grave yes. for their enemy they're digging a grave and they're like oh here's here's a bunch of gold we'll just take this gold then when they finally run into vincent price <laughs> yeah vincent price says oh i also stumbled upon some gold <laughs> while i was being chased by a bear <laughs> that's right he gets the bear plot line and we don't see it's it off screen he's the one who actually fights a bear he falls into a hole and also finds a bunch of gold Everybody in California is lousy with gold. The entire plot of this movie is pointless. They don't need this map. It's so stupid. It would be like if in Treasure Island, every pirate <laughs> <just> keeps <laughs> stumbling on treasure, but they keep finding that they need this map still for some reason. It doesn't make any sense. After the bandito takes the map, they eventually do follow the bandito to reclaim the map that's been discarded because the banditos didn't realize that they had this treasure map. Judge Higgins also follows them and then he takes it. It's just a bunch of... Basically, the next, like, 20, 30 minutes is just them catching up with Judge Higgins, Judge Higgins getting into a predicament, him escaping, then they follow him again. Like, that's the entirety of it. Yeah. It's it's extremely uninteresting. It's just running around in circles for a while. But yeah, so what happens is he gets off the map again... They follow him again. They eventually run into him again, high up in the he's mountains. He's playing a dentist. Uh, at a mining right? town. And now he's playing a dentist. He's cut his hair again. <laughs> he's found a different barber. Uh, he has shaved off his Colonel Sanders into just a large dentist mustache. <laughs> and now he's going to be hanged. A dentist mustache. <laughs> I mean, it, it worked. 
<laughs> yeah. So like, that guy's a dentist. He's got the he's mustache. He's a good con man. Uh, and so he's going to be hanged now uh, because he's a thief. Because he's been pulling out all of the teeth that have any gold in them and stealing people's gold. So he's a he's a dentist thief. Like, that's pretty obvious, eh? Yeah, it's not a good scam. We don't know how many he got through. He might have only done one. He might have done... <laughs> His scam might have lasted all of one person, and then they were like, "Okay, well now you're being yeah, hanged. Yeah. For, <laughs> you're clearly just stealing, for pulling three teeth. He's gonna be hanged. <laughs> what? Because he's stealing yeah, the gold. But the, the hills are lousy with gold. Like it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> he could have just got more teeth. But he is he's practicing medicine without a license. Come on, you go to jail for that now. <laughs> yes, that's what it was. That that mining camp up north had very strict regulations about practicing medicine without a license. Birthplace of the AMA, man. <laughs> <laughs> so they managed to convince the town not to hang him in order for him to stick around long enough to give them the map. Yeah. Uh, the townsfolk agree not to hang him just in case they are in need of a dentist in the near future. Uh, but until until the next dentist can arrive, until the next dentist arrives, um, and in order to do that, they make, uh, well, bullwhip, um, go out and dig his grave just to ensure that he knows they mean business. So they're like, well, we we won't we won't hang him right now, but we're gonna hang him soon. And to make sure he knows we're gonna hang him soon, you have to go dig his grave. So they go out and they dig his grave, and it takes about all of five minutes for them to find gold. <laughs> Yep. yep. Like at this point, I'm imagining that they've been wandering around for like who knows months, maybe looking for yep. Judge Higgins. The first time they put a shovel in the ground, they find gold. <laughs> like, I think they've been wasting their time. Like, why, why didn't they just start digging? Because the first time they dig somewhere, oh my god, it's the mother load. But, but it, it's it's the mother load, as if they didn't actually bother to look at the map and be like. Oh wait, this is the town we're in. It's just over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They they're there. They're where they wanted to be. And, and they're not even six feet they're down. Like ankle deep at that point. <laughs> okay. Okay. I have a question. Again, wasn't paying attention. Uh does Vincent Price Bartlett ever say where he got the map? Yes, he said it was given to him by a dying man as his last decree of okay. where he hid the gold. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly style. I gotcha. I was just like, why Why didn't, if this person made a map to the gold, why didn't they just take the gold themselves? Because they probably stumbled on other gold. Other gold. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah, he, he, he probably died carrying too much gold he found along the way to the mother <laughs> <laughs> ah, My back's broken from all this gold. It's the number one cause of death in California. You know? <laughs> too much gold. I got gold poisoning. Well, it almost kills Jack. This, they all have true. too much gold. It almost kills all that's of them. That's basically it. They've found their gold. The story is over, except we're only about 45 minutes into this hour and 50 minute movie. Mm. And so now while they're harvesting all their gold, uh, we cut there's back a, to There's Eric. a montage, right? There's a there's like a song, not a montage, but there's a there's a title no, the, the, things. The, the, the montage is after is after this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have to there's have There's a titles theme. and things moment where we go back to that terrible song. Again, yeah. the opening credits said music by the Sherman Brothers. We are now close to an hour into this movie, and there are no songs by the Sherman Brothers. There aren't even really any songs. There is the theme song, which keeps playing over and over and over again with slightly different lyrics that are all equally terrible. There is a song that you hear in the background when they get to San Francisco called uh, 
California Gold, which I am also 99% certain is also the theme song again with different (laughs) lyrics because this guy was incapable of writing any other music. It's the exact same melody over and over again. And there's no Sherman Brothers music. Now, finally, we get Arabella, who finally arrives in San Francisco. She meets Sam Trimble. She tells Sam Trimble that she's looking for her brother and their butler, but she needs a place to stay. He's going to set her up, and he's going to set her up in his, well, saloon, I guess, but it's more of like a burlesque house, but we'll get to that, I guess. Um, and then we cut back to the uh, our two heroes, uh, Griffin and Jack, and they are traveling back to San Francisco, San Francisco with pockets full of gold. So that, that's the, that's what I was going to say. They got the titles and things shot of them just singing of their adventures. And it's just like, oh, and they got all the money. Yeah, <laughs> like it all like, happens off screen. All of the important beats in the show happen off screen. There has also, there, there was that moment, because I think this has already happened by that point, because they inadvertently destroy the mining camp as well, where they're, they're remember, because they're going to, Judge Higgins is like, what's going on? I thought you were waiting for the next dentist. And they're like, oh, we're just going to get the blacksmith. Yeah. Oh, yes. And then, and the only reason they made note of it was because there is an insane stunt in that scene where a man is riding a horse with a 30-foot noose around his neck with his hands tied behind his back, navigating a trail in between yeah. the cast. And it was, I could not, and I was like, this is the 1960s. That guy's just and it's, doing it's it. it's cutting to Judge Higgins uh, in front of some rear projection as he goes, and he mugs for the camera. And yeah. then it cuts to a stunt performer from behind actually doing it. And it's, you're right. It's amazing. He's actually riding that horse with his hands uh, behind his back and yeah. with a noose around his neck through a bunch of, yeah, performers. And like, and what's not a set like that is they are filming outside. I was like, there was nothing to stop that thing from snagging a bush or a tree or somebody stepping on it and breaking so, it. Uh, so now we get to them on the boat and they are taking a boat through San Francisco Bay back to San Francisco. Uh, and they have money belts on full of gold um and uh they are being pursued once again by judge higgins who this time he's run out of facial hair disguises no he's uh, he has a mustache he, he's he's changed his facial hair slightly he has and, into uh, is what is it a fu manchu is that the yeah that's not what it is. politically yeah. correct term it's the, well, no, none of this is. Uh, no, I said the not politically correct <laughs> yeah, term. Yeah. I don't know what to call it. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, okay. So, once again, we're playing our game spot that racism, and <laughs> we're now on this boat, and this is a very strange scene because Judge Higgins is now dressed up in a stereotypical nineteenth-century uh, Chinese garb. Which they they set up they set up slightly earlier in the film because they talked to a man at a camp that has Chinese people working in it, mm-hmm. wearing that exact outfit, and someone says, "Oh, you're looking for a guy yes. with a scar in yes, his face." Yes, exactly. So they establish what is the stereotypical Chinese outfit, and then in this scene, you see Judge Higgins, who has once again facial hair disguised himself with a Fu Manchu, and wearing these Chinese clothes to pretend that he is a Chinese man, and. The disguise is not limited to the clothing and ah. the racially uh, questionable mustache that he has employed. Yeah. Uh, he also is just making gibberish noises in the stereotypical, extremely offensive 
uh, I don't even know how to describe it without also just being incredibly offensive. Just yeah, the, the, yeah. We don't have to go a, any further into detail. It's no, terrible. It is, it is such a this problem. Is, I mean, obviously, this is terrible. Let's just move on. Well, here's the thing that's baffling about it. This scene proceeds to make very little sense. And the reason I think it makes very little sense is it has been cut to shit uh, uh, yes. because of some censorship that is going on to cut out at least one racial slur. And there might be, I think there might be something else that's been cut out because what happens is we get a moment where Jack and, and Bullwhip are at the standing at the side of the boat, looking out into the bay. Judge Higgins is kind of hiding behind the corner, but he calls out Eric Griffin. Uh, please proceed to the captain's, um, uh, the bridge to speak with the captain. And then Griffin rounds the corner. And then we get a very strange scene. I have no <laughs> idea what's happening in this scene. He then, Griffin then walks up to Judge Higgins. He's making these offensive, stereotypical Chinese noises and asks, have you seen a man around here? And he makes some more noises. And then Griffin hits him. <laughs> You're, you're inexplicably yeah. inexplicably hits him yeah, and then walks off and tells Jack to go to their their quarters. And I don't understand what's supposed to be happening in that moment. First of all, I don't know who why Griffin is asking him, did you see a man around here? Because he just got instructions to go to the captain's office. It's, he's not looking for someone. He's supposed to be going to the captain's office. Secondly, I don't know why he hits him. Like, I mean, maybe it's just a joke at the time where it's like, oh, stop speaking Chinese and then I'm going to hit you. Like, it's a very, very strange scene. And in that scene, there's a clear moment where the soundtrack, there's music underneath and the soundtrack cuts out. You can hear that there's an edit in there. I don't know if something is being cut out, if there was more to that scene that was being spliced out or in and i don't know what would have happened it's an odd scene and it makes no sense to me regardless griffin goes to the captain's chambers uh jack goes back to their quarters and judge higgins follows him picks him up and then runs into the room with him still this entire time making these offensive chinese sounds <laughs> yeah I would like to point out, because this is the most perplexing thing. There's no one else around because he's kidnapping a young boy. There's clearly no yes. one else around. The young boy says, Judge Higgins recognizes him. He continues making the Chinese noises. Yes. There's no one around. He's just doing it. It's just part of the scene that is continuing. It is not his disguise. He just wants to be racist for a little while. And keep in mind, this is the edited version. Yeah. So he tries to get the gold from Jack. Jack fights him off and ends up falling into the river. He he tries to get the gold, which is around a money belt. So Judge Higgins starts undressing a little boy. Yeah, this this scene, it's I it's just uncomfortable to talk about on every level. <laughs> it is awful. But Jack yep. falls into the river, Griffin sees it, jumps in after him. Uh the gold is weighing both of them down. And so Griffin has to pull the gold away from Jack and drop it to the bottom of the river and then drop his own gold to the bottom of the river so that they can 
swim up to the surface and survive, but they lose all their gold. And then what happens is Captain pulls them up back onto the boat, gives them a blanket, and he says, son, what happened? And I'm just going to read this to you. Jack says, there's a big man dressed like some others, but it was really Judge Higgins. And then the captain says, round up all the men and take him to the wheelhouse. And if you rewind it and watch what they're saying, he doesn't say there's a big man dressed like some others. Because that sentence makes no sense. What does it mean to be dressed like some others? What he says is there's a big man dressed like a blank. And that blank is a racial slur. And then when the captain says round up all the men, he also is not saying men. He is saying that same racial slur. And Ah. so in that scene, they have... Jesus, I I did not watch it that closely edited out a racial slur, which I am perfectly fine with, and I do not think is a problem at all. What I have a question, what I question is if you're going to edit that out, why are those stereotypical Chinese noises in this movie? Why Why was that kept in the movie? It's not necessary. It's not at all integral to the plot. It does not need to be there. Who watched this movie decided let's take out that slur, but keep that entire other portion of this incredibly <laughs> racially offensive sequence. That's terrible. Yeah. And, and, and that was kind of the thing I noticed, like hearkening back to the intro title card. And as you already brought up that it says, we've kept this in not to hide from it, but to say for the sake of conversation, we've left these in. I was like, but you took other things out and, left some of this stuff in. I guess in their mind, that's acceptable levels of racism then. That's the only thing. That's what's so uncomfortable about it. Yeah. Is that, I mean... They took out the really bad stuff and they're like, yeah, this is fine. When clearly it's not. I mean, the problem is, is that they have some sort of a checklist Mm -hmm. associated with what can or cannot be on Disney+. And one of the things on the checklists is racial slurs. And so... I mean, for good reason. Yes, Yes. that's not a problem. (laughs) I don't disagree with that. But the thing is, is that they couldn't... Because this is a policy that's come down from the top that says you can't put... We're not putting anything on that has a racial slur in it. They have this movie that has a racial slur in it, and they're saying, well, we'll just take it out. We'll just edit in the word some others and make the scene make no sense, but whatever. But... No one is sitting there saying, but we're going to leave all the rest of this offensive racism in there because it's very arbitrary to take one out and not the other. It doesn't make any sense. And Bullwhip has, throughout the whole course of this film, been pretty much a kind person to every single person he meets except for just decides to smack Judge Higgins in this scene. Without without knowing no it's reason. Judge Higgins. That's right, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm using the term Judge Higgins. It's it's extremely strange. That's why right. I'm saying yeah. maybe there's something else edited out of this scene. Like I that makes it make sense why he would suddenly hit this Chinese man that he doesn't know that he just smacks for yeah, no reason. Yeah, it just reason. seems like he's just a jackass for no reason in this one it's, scene. It's extremely disturbing. And it makes no sense. And it's, I don't know. So that's what happens. You decide to take out one small part of your very large amount of racism. 
can we can we stop focusing on the racist part now and get to the part where they beat up a mentally challenged person? Yes, <laughs> let's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, the, the fact that that is that is the high note. Moving on, so from this. they've lost all of their gold, but they get back to San Francisco and they find that first of all, Bartlett has also stumbled upon gold, as every single person in California does. So he's got some gold, so that's okay. But they need some more money to get Jack and his sister back to Boston. Yeah, they find and they so, find uh, they find the sister. In, you know, I, I almost wonder at this town. point, and this was just an afterthought, that perhaps the rate of inflation due to the amount of gold everybody has been bringing into San Francisco is that a haircut still costs fifteen dollars. The inflation, like, there's just so much gold that that is now worth thirty cents. <laughs> It's the same amount of gold. It's the same amount it's of just gold. A pile of gold is only worth 30 cents. A glove of gold is now just 30 cents. <laughs> so they get back to San Francisco and they yes. find Arabella, who's now singing at the saloon. And she's singing in a cabaret style burlesque performance. It's not incredibly racy, but Griffin well, seems you to listen act to as the if lyrics? It's... Well, I'll get, I'll get to that. <laughs> That's uh, why Griffin's acting like it. Yeah, yeah. Griffin's Griffin tells Jack not to watch because this is inappropriate for children. Keep in mind, in eighteen whatever, if you saw an ankle, it would be racy. So yeah. these people are showing right. full leg. So yeah, they're showing full sexy. leg. You're right. Yeah. This is eighteen forty nine burlesque style. And now we finally get the Sherman Brothers songs. So here's the Sherman Brothers song. They have one song <laughs> the two, that's called no, "The Girls of San Francisco." <laughs> this, they're this both just very sexy songs. These two songs. Uh, well, this is this is the Sherman Brothers singing about how much Ringo Starr wants to sleep with Carrie Fisher when she's yeah. sixteen. They're bringing that energy yeah. in, into this, and they're singing about yeah. the girls of San Francisco, uh, which are going to dance for you. You can pull up a chair, boys. You're free to stare, boys, but open your poke, boys, and lay down some cash, boys. Uh, is the lyrics of this song? She then has a second song uh, where she seduces and flirts and and uh uh kind of does some a bit more seductive table dancing for everybody in this saloon about uh how she's gonna kiss and fall in love with any one of them i gotta say didn't mind the songs they're not the best sherman brothers music <laughs> but it was better than everything else that i'd been hearing in this movie yeah you know i kind of feel like they took it up a notch so we gotta we gotta say the reason why they're in the bar though uh is because uh mountain ox they recognize uh, Bull of Griffin and Jack, um, and so Sam still wants to uh, do that fight, right? It's still the talk of the town. His legend has only increased over the course of the year that they've been out panning for gold, digging graves for gold, um, and so they still want to have this fight. Yeah. So he invites him into his saloon uh, saying, hey, yeah, we'll, you got to butter us up with a steak. We can't make decisions on an empty stomach. Uh, so we'll, we'll, you feed us up or we'll think about it. That's where they see Arabella singing these sexy songs. And then Bullwhip decides to take the fight, but he wants an advance of $1,000 um, so he can buy two tickets to send Jack and Arabella back to Boston. We're in the situation where Eric Griffin agrees to uh, take that boxing match that had been previously offered to him for the money in order to send everyone back to Boston on the next boat. And like you said, his legend has only increased in this town because everyone talks about the one man who was able to knock out uh, Mountain Ox. And so, again, I'm just come back to the thing that 
this movie, which starts off with a song about how the legend of Bullwhip Griffin, and we're going to learn all about his endeavors. The legend is just he beat up a <laughs> mentally challenged man. That is Twice. the legend of Bullwhip Griffin that everyone talks about to this day. It's the only it's, things that we see him do. What is this plot? The movie has ended oh. three times already. Like, it's had three times to exit, and it just keeps going, and they keep finding a new way yeah. to lose gold or look for they more gold. They don't need any of it. At this point, he, again, he has $1,000 in his pocket. Um, Bartlett comes in with a sock full of gold, and yet they still need to win the boxing match for some reason. Like, they come up with this convoluted reason where Griffin has to do it because he gave his word that he would do it. Arabella won't leave if he doesn't leave, and so they have to go through with it. But it's all nonsense. Like, the movie doesn't need to happen. No. Nope. They had all their money back at the beginning with the with the, the haircuts. barber shop quartine, yep. you know, it's bizarre with the haircuts. Anyway, so the rest yeah. of this movie, which is like another 40 minutes, it's like half of it's the movie is just training, training to, to be a boxer. Beat up this mentally challenged. And there's like, yeah, cutesy montages between him and Arabella, like dancing around because they know he can't beat him in strength. So he's got to do his fancy footwork. Um, and this is where we get one of the, he gets knocked out by one punch from Arabella. And then it like pauses the frame. And then the titles and things guy drew a cupid with this stupid trumpet blowing its horn yeah across the there's, a, there's a suddenly a brand new running gag which comes out of nowhere and it's a yeah. brand new like filmmaking comedic style where now they draw an animated cherub onto the film that will fly around his head like like the stereotype cartoon with like the birds that fly around someone's head yeah. this is a single cherub that comes out whenever he gets knocked out or comes to after being knocked out and we're like an hour into this movie and they've suddenly introduced. Yeah. And I, I did because I made the original note of, oh, Cupid, and then put times two and then times three <laughs> because the guy could already overstate it. Welcome. And then and it showed uh, up the third time. He, he literally gets green with envy at one point and some has superhuman strength. He hulks out and punches his training boxing. This movie thing. goes way off the rails. I thought the same thing, too. I thought, is he hulking out? And I said, no, he can't have been hulking out. That wouldn't have been a term yet. And I said, oh, no, he's he's literally green with envy. I mean, then later in the fight, um, Mountain Ox basically turns into Abomination when yeah. he turns red and fights him. So it is kind of like that Edward Norton Hulk movie. Right? <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, this, they do the I remember that was <laughs> you, you texted us before and were like, the last 20 minutes of yeah. this movie are insane. <laughs> and so I just was, I was like, okay, what am I in for? And man, were you not kidding? It just, it throws reality. I mean, it already has its moments of this is a comedy and it's slapsticky, but at this point they're like, okay, never mind reality, yeah. get out of yeah. the way. It just, it devolves into just absolute insanity. The, There's the, nothing The to ending it. of this movie, the last, you know, 30, 20 minutes of it is this boxing match between Bullwhip Griffin and Mountain Ox. Mountain Ox is clearly this this monster of a man. He is like the Game of Thrones mountain. <laughs> He's going to kill him with one punch, and Griffin has to somehow defeat this man. They decide to do it by making him into Daffy Duck mm -hmm. from the Looney Tune. And the thing that jumped out at me was, Robbie, we we're talking about Blackbeard's ghost last time. And we're talking about how in Blackbeard's Ghost, uh, Roger Ebert gave it a good review because uh, it reminded him of the absent-minded professor. Absent -minded professor. Yeah, yeah. I made this note too. Keep going. So in Blackbeard's <laughs> Ghost, the sports climax 
has a very Flubber-esque feel to it. It feels a lot like the absent-minded professor where the sports team manages to cheat their way into winning the game because they have this magical ability. And in the absent-minded professor, it's Flubber that allows them to jump over their opponents. In Blackbeard's ghost, it's it's a ghost that will literally carry them (laughs) over their opponents. In this movie, they have the same climax again. They do the same sequence where the underdog is able to leap over their superior opponents using magical abilities, but there's no magic. For some reason, Bullwit Griffin suddenly has the ability to leap 20 feet into the air Mm -hmm. over the head of the mountain ox. And at one point, he he seems to hover in midair, mind you. Punch down on him <laughs> as up. if he has the Time power up. of flight. Do you think George, Jar Jar Martin, sorry, Jay, whatever his name is, watched this movie and said, I'm going to name a character the mountain after Mountain Knox? <laughs> well, to be perfectly honest, it actually feels a lot like the scene from <sighs> Game of Thrones where uh, the Mandalorian has to fight the mountain and he can only do it by dodging yeah. around him as fast as possible. It's the, it's same the exact same, it's fight, the same fight. Except in in this sequence, it would be like if the Mandalorian had the power of flight. Yes. Because he he hovers at one point. He like leaps up into the air, hovers over his head, and then like plinks him on the top of his head with like his fingers where he goes plink. Yeah. And it's like, what when did you gain these abilities? What what magical amulet did you discover in that gold pit that gives you these abilities let's just go through it really quickly because we are overstaying our welcome on this dumb fight he has to we're basically at the end here but yeah yeah. so he has to win it's a best of three if you fall down you touch the ground you lose the round right that's what it is First round is yeah, to the Yeah, he's ox. done all this dancing around, and then he turns around, Mountain Ox just puts his arm out, and basically Bullet Griffin runs into his hand and falls down, knocks unconscious. He gets kissed yeah. again, stupid fucking Cupid comes out, stupid Trumpet comes out, and then the second round, um, he wins. How does he win the second round? Um, someone trips, someone trips uh, him. Like I was trip. like, this is uh, another movie where the hero <laughs> so- wins by cheating. And gets his ill-gotten gains. Yep. It was it was the same ending as Blackbeard's Ghost, where the hero cheats to I'm get the money. I'm going to read my last five notes, okay? And they all swear, so apologies in advance. I said, what the fuck, Green with Evan V? That was my la- the one before. Why are all these fucking movies about cheating at sports? Fucking Cupid, fuck this fight, that fucking kiss trumpet. <laughs> and then my last one was, yeah, fuck this and movie. I- at this point, we, we've missed the fourth or fifth introduction of Judge Higgins as the new bookkeeper. Oh, yeah! Who had got in as a book, the new bookie on the fight. Clean so while everyone is distracted. Yeah, he's clean shaven by this point and wearing glasses. Um, so he can rob the safe while everybody is distracted. Yes, so he's going to take all of the gold that is being wagered on this final boxing match. Uh, 50 to 1 odds, by the way. 50 to 1 odds, and all. All the golden town is in Luckily, that Luckily, through a sequence of chaotic Daffy Duck bouncing around the room-esque endeavors, um, both... Yeah, I was going to say you're right. Daffy Duck endeavors, I forgot, because the finale of the fight is also won by more cheating. <laughs> because Vincent Price steals oh, yeah. the bell so that it can't be rung and then hangs it back up so that the bell can be rung in time for Bulwark Griffin mm-hmm. to 
win, even though it was technically a All double knockout. All of the movies have been about cheating at sports and betting on sports and winning your bet There's by so cheating. so much cheating in these And movies. also the people... Actually, no, you're right, because there was that whole sequence in the black hole where the robot cheated to win and then proceeded to yes. murder him. That, 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 we're changing the name of the podcast to How to Cheat in Sports. <laughs> <laughs> and play shady bets and win. Yeah. What happens here is that Griffin wins the boxing match, but around the same time, it's discovered that Judge Higgins is stealing all the gold, and in the chaos, a, a lamp is knocked over, starting a fire. Uh, Higgins gets away with the gold briefly, but everyone's basically chasing after him while Griffin and Arabella and Jack are left behind to try to put out this fire that is now consuming yeah. the entire saloon. The gold saloon. is on the back of a horse or a mule. So it's yes. running away. Yeah. So uh, Higgins has put the gold on a mule, but this, because everyone is now chasing after him, the mule runs off. He runs off himself. He locks himself in a jail to escape. Because, from... Which which they, they do set up because they let all the prisoners out of the jail and leave the keys in the lock to help them. Because they say, we'll let you out if you help put out the fire. Yes. So that's which the setup for him. And locks himself in the Running jail. himself and locking himself into the jail, which uh, is the last we see of him. So presumably yeah, he defeats he himself. There. Yeah, that's that's his story arc. Is the only person that can defeat Judge Higgins is Judge Higgins. <laughs> yeah, he ran out of facial hair, so he cannot escape any yeah. longer, and he locked <laughs> himself up. If he had more facial hair, he would have run. I'm done until my beard grows back. <laughs> then the mule just walks back. That's the end of the movie. Is that the mule walks back with all this? Jack gold. finds him. They don't Jack put out the him. fire. They no, I'm. I made a note of like, well, this certainly escalated quickly because it went from, oh, a lamp's on fire to, oh, the whole town is on fire. And then remembering, wait, this is a this is an event that happened. This is the 1851 San Francisco fire. That it's, is yeah. what this is. They got there in 1849. This is, or sorry, they left in 1849. They probably got there in 1850. This is about <laughs> a year later. It's the 1851 San Francisco fire. The entire city was basically burned to the ground. They're basically saying this is what happened. It was Bullwhip Griffin. <laughs> Judge Bull Higgins Griffin caused Judge Higgins. <laughs> Judge Higgins caused the San Francisco fire. So, okay, biggest question of the movie. I guilty of not paying attention. During the scene where Arabella and Bullwhip Griffin are clearing out all the belongings out of the bar, Arabella just says to Mountain Ox. I'm the I'm boss, the boss now. now, and it makes no sense. I don't know and, where that came from. And Mountain Ox says, okay, and all of a sudden, Mountain Ox is on Team Bullwhip, Team Arabella. Yeah. There's something missing there, because actually, I rewound that too. Because Bullwhip says okay. to Arabella, boss says he's going to kill me. And Arabella says, he's not the boss now, I am. Now, I went back and watched, and I was like, when did boss say he was going to kill him? It's not there. There's no line oh. where Sam Trimble says he's going to kill Mountain Ox. There's because, something like, missing. There's a scene missing that explains why Mountain Ox then becomes allied to oh Arabella okay. and Griffin. I thought I was just not paying attention. No, I because, thought I was losing like, my mind too because I was like, when did this happen? Why is Mountain Ox on their side now? All of a sudden. Mountain Ox is what it is. It's like yeah. Yeah. He just is on their side. Judge Higgins takes care of himself. And then Arabella just says, no, 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 no. You should listen to me. And Mountain Ox says, okay. And that's the only reason why they get all of the gold at the end. And everything is okay. 
is that one well everything dialogue. is okay for them because oh yes the because ending of the movie the is they get all of the gold the all of the city's gold that yeah. was then not given back to the city now to be fair you don't know what they did with the gold except you do because the movie ends and then we hear a song about what they did with the gold and then what they did was they rebuilt san francisco except that wasn't your gold you cannot (laughs) be a philanthropist with gold you stole and then have a giant statue of yourself built that claims you are the reason san francisco exists when you burned it down and stole everybody's gold to rebuild it from what I gather, that is basically the history of capitalism in America. So it's a very fitting <laughs> rewrite of history. That's fair enough. Um, That's fair enough. But uh, it's still an odd way to end this film. And it just ends with a giant bronze statue of Bullwhip that he they, he built of himself in the town <laughs> of San Francisco. Um, this was a realization I had about the film's ending. And it wasn't until I'd watched it and digested it a bit that I realized that Judge Higgins burned to death in the jail. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. The entire city burns down. He locked himself in The entire city burns down and everybody leaves, but he has locked himself in the jail. Wow. Never mind. That's a darker ending for him than I thought. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) So in the end, the only thing, I mean, the only thing to to stop Judge Higgins is Judge Higgins. And And fire. Yeah. (laughs) His two weaknesses. One other thing I'll add about that last 40 minutes, that just huge boxing match thing, as ridiculous as it is, I really like Roddy McDowell in it. Um, I think he's he's really fun in that. Uh, The scene is bizarre because it has, like I I said, it was Daffy Duck. It also has like some manic Jim Carrey in the mask style energy. Okay, I'm glad you said Jim Carrey because I was getting some like Jim Carrey vibes off of Roddy McDowell throughout the course of this film. Yeah. And the other name that jumps into my head in that, especially in that final sequence, because it's so slapstick, it becomes so broad. He was very straight laced straight man. And then all of a sudden he's going very broad and big with the performance, but it also has like a Bruce Campbell vibe, like an evil dead Bruce Campbell vibe where he's jumping around and he's mugging for the camera. And I think it's great. Like it's a, he's fantastic and it's also very different than kind of the way that he was performing the character previously um but he's uh, fantastic it's just unfortunate that the scene is dumb as shit it makes no sense it's bizarre but i think he's great you said when we started like he is great in this movie it's just this movie is trash it absolutely is okay it is um Speaking of movies that are trash, what else did Disney release in 1967? <laughs> they released a movie called Mosby's Marauders, which starred Kurt Russell. Hey! It's original flavor, yeah. Russell. They started a movie, <laughs> they released a movie called Monkeys Go Home. They released a movie called The Gnome-Mobile, directed by Robert Stevenson. I'm assuming he used the exact same effects that he used for Darby O'Gill, but this time with gnomes. So, yeah. you know. And maybe they're just driving around in Herbie the Love Bug. Like, they released just a movie called Charlie the Lonesome Cougar, but a man who adopts a cougar. They released a movie called The Happiest Millionaire, and they released a movie called The Jungle Book, which was massively successful. Yeah. 
one of their most successful animated films of all time. So and it made up for all the losses of the other films. Because this movie <laughs> did not make very much money. It was considered a financial disappointment, just like a lot of this nonsense that they were releasing at the time. Um, any final thoughts about whatever the fuck we just watched? It started me down this this very strange rabbit hole of not just this film, but other other changes and censors of things that Disney has actually been doing, not just to Disney plus, but how they do actually go back and change movies and change things if things don't land. Um, and it, it just started me down this kind of weird rabbit hole about that, which got me curious. Like to watch. what examples do you have? Um, one I found out was actually in, in the Santa Claus. Um, there is a line where that's referencing the sun accidentally calling a pornographic hotline and in the original in the theatrical version of the film tim allen says the name of the hotline in the movie and is 1-800 spank me oh i know that number the writers used a real hotline number in the film and children who saw the movie were calling <laughs> 1-800 spank me oh my god and so disney actually did and apparently this has been i think since the vhs release but they did go back and chop that scene of the joke out huh. um i found out too that the episode when they put The Simpsons on Disney Plus, uh, the episode Starcrave and Dad featuring Michael Jackson is not streamable on Disney Plus because they did not bring it over. Yes, except um, I believe that was James L. Brooks um, mm. because uh, I remember after the Michael Jackson documentary came out, um, this was the documentary that Surviving Neverland, I believe, is the name. It came out yes. at Sundance. There was another kind of big push about talking about the accusations against Michael Jackson. And it was during that period, James L. Brooks put out a statement where he said, uh, I'm never going to let anyone ever see that episode of the Simpsons again. Basically I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. And apparently I'm assuming James L. Brooks has that power because it's not on he Disney plus. Yeah, and and like and there's little things like that, or there's other instances like where they'll go back and they'll change animation frames. Like I think in the Emperor's New Groove, originally he throws a rock at the the one of the villains' heads, and in if you watch the streamable version, he's throwing an acorn. They make like little slight, hmm. tiny changes to that, little things to tone down violence or things they deem too sexual. There's even a change to the intro right. of uh, a Goofy movie. Oh, what's um, the dream? Uh, the dream sequence with Max and is her name Roxanne? Roxanne, the, yeah. Um, he has that dream sequence where she falls towards him and she catches him. And in the original version, she lands much closer to him and his nose ends up in her chest. And if you watch the version that's on Disney+, Plus, they've actually gone and stretched the cells out a bit. So she he catches her much further away and that doesn't happen. Oh, they originally did a, a, a Joss Whedon? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and again, like, it's not like, it's not that like, I think all of these changes are like, I'm not mad about any of them. It just started me down this. Oh, okay. So mm. them doing this to this film, isn't something new. They, they make little changes to this as, as things go on. Yeah. And it's an, it, there's an interesting discussion to be had about censorship. And I think, uh, the context is always important. And I think each situation is different, which is exactly what I think the problem was in this particular one, because I'm pretty sure the censorship is coming out of blanket policies that are mm -hmm. being given from the top and the people executing them aren't able to, or don't care about executing judgment about what that means in reality, because what that means in reality is you get kind of the worst of both worlds. You get a sequence that is censored 
So it makes very little sense now and is in a narrative standpoint uh, diminished. That's not to say that this was an artistic piece that really should have been recovered for all time, but certainly from a narrative standpoint, that sequence is diminished because now it makes no sense. But at the same time is still exceptionally racist exactly so you're getting neither side in this you're getting the worst of both worlds yeah yeah you're, you're you're just getting a bad movie that as you said has these scenes of you've obviously cut this scene down like why why did you leave why did you these stop noises here? In? it's a very yeah. strange place yeah. to stop you you took out some of the racism from this scene and yeah. there's still much more of it that easily could have also been removed but for arbitrary reasons, was it? So I'm on IMDb, um, and uh, I mean, obviously, these are not, like, official, uh, like, plot synopsis, but this is the plot for Bullet Griffin. Did you did you guys read it? Well, I read my version of the plot, but let's hear your yeah, version of the plot. <laughs> no, this is, this is what theirs is. A young man from Boston heads west to join the California Gold Rush with the hopes of restoring his family fortune, but his dedicated butler sets out to find him and bring him home. I mean, that's the first five minutes of the plot. It yeah. describes nothing of what we just watched. I'm not even sure any description describes what we just watched. <laughs> what we what we just watched was mostly nonsensical. I don't think we, I don't think we have to rank it. This is going this is going to stay at the bottom of the list. Well, for and now, it's at the bottom. Let's say and it's this is at the bottom. Yeah, this is at the bottom. I mean, if something Agreed. is going to knock this out, I don't I don't want to know what well, that's we'll going to. Well, we have to watch every movie, Bobby. So we will find out. There's still 1,700 and such and such to go, you know? And maybe something's going to be By the next time we record, they'll have added at least six or seven more. So what are we going to do next, though? Do we have any ideas? I was uh, suggesting to Robbie we don't have to do this, but I was... I've never seen the original Freaky Friday. You know, neither have I. Oh, man! We're totally doing Freaky Friday. I love that movie. I mean, I saw it a bunch as a kid on The Wonderful World of Disney. Uh, so, But I haven't seen it in decades. So I am, I am down with watching freaky friday all right let's do the original jodie foster freaky friday and that's the show if you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time send us an email at the podcast war tennis shoes at gmail.com we can also be reached on facebook and twitter at pod war that's at p-o-d-w-o-r-e and if you like the show give us a good review on your podcast platform it really helps us out we hope you tune in next time Thanks.